Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Before we jump into the program for today, we have a comment from uh, Friday. You'll recall we had a special uh, program, ended up being about an hour and 45-minute uh, program on uh, Friday, responding to the news that broke uh, late on Thursday about the Outdoor Industry Association announcing that after next year, Salt Lake City will no longer host the Outdoor Retailer Show. They're pulling the show from Utah due to uh, incompatible uh, views, as they see it, with Utah's elected officials over uh, management of public lands. And uh, so we had a program. Many of you uh, commented. Thank you for that. Keep the comments coming to upraccess at gmail.com. We received uh, this comment uh, just after the show wrapped. wanted to get this on. This is from Ron Hamlin. Ron says, uh, the, the title of his comments is Government Control of Lands. This is what uh, Ron says. I trust the ineptitude of the federal government and their bungling of managing our lands more than I would trust the greed of our own state legislature's handling of the same lands. I've GPS trails all through Sevier County for the county road department, and the only places I've been denied access is lands that have been closed as uh, quote-unquote game preserves and managed by the uh, DNR. I do agree that the Grand Staircase Monument was created as a political move by President Clinton to gain votes and uh, to thumb his nose at Utah. It is way too big, and much of it is not nearly as pretty as other parts of our state that are not protected. The Bears Ears may be a sacred ground to Native tribes, as really the whole earth is sacred to them, and should be to us too, as the earth is our mother. There is nothing we use that does not come from her. I don't know what stake the Diné have in the Bears Ears, as it is not on the reservation, and historically the San Juan River has been the northern border of Dineta. I worry more about who controls our own legislature than I do <clears throat> excuse me, about the mess in Washington. I would think local leaders would be above being bought, but a statement by a member of the State Board of Realtors at our last social really scared me. He said, quote, Now be sure and pay into our super PAC, as we've had 100% of all the laws we've sponsored past the legislature, end quote. Do you see why the prison is being moved without public comment and hearings? Why not move the refineries? If we are serious about cleaning the air in Salt Lake, that would have to happen before we worry about fireplaces and water heaters. Well, I'm off the subject. Sorry. There's uh, a way to have a clean environment, save resources for our children, and still have a good economy. But we've got to get out of the rut of doing and thinking how it's always been done and become a leader in the direction of sustainability. Both sides need to learn to compromise just like our forefathers did when they framed the Constitution of this country. You know, the document that our politicians wrap themselves in while they're trying to wrestle uh, it to, to their advantage. Uh, he said that parenthetically. Sorry to bend your ear for so long here, but I'm uh, pretty frustrated with those who should know better. I can't believe that we're so stupid as to continue to give them power over our lives. Sincerely, Ron Hamlin. Uh, that is Ron's uh, comment uh, on the uh, outdoor retailer show, Leaving Utah. We would love to have your comments on this or anything related to public lands. Keep those coming to upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com. Now to today's program. We're glad you've joined us for Access Utah. Today my guest for the hour is Pulitzer Prize winning New York Times columnist Nicholas Kristof. The website for their Half the Sky movement, founded by Mr. Kristof and his wife Cheryl Wudan, says the central moral challenge of our time is reaching a tipping point. Just as slavery was the defining struggle of the 19th century and totalitarianism of the 20th, the fight to end the oppression of women and girls worldwide defines our current century. We're going to talk about this and some of the individuals profiled in their book, A Path Appears, who are effecting positive change. We're also going to talk about President Trump, journalism in our new era, fake news, women's marches, and the dangers of echo chambers on campus. Nicholas Kristof visited Utah State University on Thursday for an event titled Sex, Gender, Politics, a conversation with Nicholas Kristof. The Kane College of the Arts collaborated with the Center for Women and Gender to host Nicholas Kristof at Utah State University, and we recorded this conversation on Thursday. But you can still comment to upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com, and we'll get your comment on during the hour. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and we have with us a Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times columnist, Nicholas Kristof. Today, the Kane College of the Arts collaborated with the Center for Women and Gender to host Mr. Kristof at Utah State University. 
Nicholas Kristoff has lived on four continents, reported on six, traveled to more than 150 countries. During his travels, he's caught malaria, experienced wars, confronted warlords, encountered an Indonesian mob carrying heads on pikes, and survived an African airplane crash. Kristoff not only managed to survive and press on, he's also won two Pulitzers in the process, advocating human rights and giving a voice to the voiceless. That's uh, the introduction. Uh, for, from Utah State University. Uh, a lot's gone on. Yeah, yeah, and good to be with you, and I'm glad I don't see any mobs with yeah. heads on pikes around here. <laughs> you survived that and, and much more. Uh, grew up in Oregon. Yeah, beautiful town in rural Oregon, uh, yeah. right where the Willamette Valley meets the coastal range on a farm. People probably think of you an Eastern, as an Easterner now, right? Because they, they associate you with New York Times. and Yeah, and they don't you know realize I'm a farm boy from Oregon. Yeah, yeah. Uh, tell me briefly how about that journey. Um, you, you went to Harvard, went uh, to Oxford. I, I did, yeah, but I, but I started out in, uh, in, uh, on a farm four miles from Yamhill, Oregon, and my journalism career began when the local grade school uh, decided to start a school newspaper, and I wasn't particularly interested in, in journalism, but a bunch of kids went to the meeting. They wanted to have a student newspaper, but nobody wanted the burden of editing it, so they chose me in abstentia as editor. And, <laughs> and I loved it. Um, my, um, you know, my first crusade was against the school dress code, which banned girls from wearing blue jeans. And this ingratiated myself with all the hot eighth grade girls. And, uh, <laughs> it, uh, um, and I, I, mean, I, I really, I really did enjoy journalism. And I pursued it in high school, uh, with the local paper and internships, uh, at Harvard and, um, and I was in danger of becoming a lawyer at one point. I, I, mm. I studied law, but uh, um, nothing, you know, turns one off law more than studying land law. Yeah. And so, <laughs> so I escaped that fate. Right. Uh, well, and, and uh, you know, a lot of people who read your column are, are grateful that you that you did. I want to jump in with, uh, we put out the word on our Twitter account at UPR Access uh, for people who want to ask you questions. We got this in from uh, a uh, listener. Says, uh, how does uh, Mr. Kristoff respond to uh, Trump's comments on the failing New York Times, and what can media do to ensure truthful, hard-hitting coverage? Uh, Mr. Trump does like to do branding. He tries to. Yeah. He's tried to brand the New York Times. Yeah, and we're kind of grateful because every time he he denounces the New York Times, we get more subscribers, um, and so uh, you know we have a better business model now than um, when he started this. I mean, you know, sure, there it is a little demoralizing to have, um, you know, to be attacked regularly like that. But I've worked in, I spent five years in China, uh, where we were not only being, you know, attacked uh, from the from the government, but being physically attacked and, you know, being shot at at Tiananmen Square. And um, I've worked in a lot of places where the threats. Uh, are much more lethal. So, uh, you know, we can, um, we dish it out. We've got to be willing to take it. Hmm. Uh, what about uh, this question? What can the media do to ensure truthful, hard-hitting coverage, especially in a in an era where all sides throw around this, this uh, epithet of fake news? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the response to that is is digging and aggressive reporting. I don't think that 2016 was the media's finest hour. I think that uh, TV in particular um, just often dropped the ball. And uh, part of that was that everybody, there is this business crisis in, in journalism. And that's true of TV, of newspapers, of news magazines. Everybody's scrambling for audience. And Trump delivered an audience. And so there was a tendency to cover his press conferences nonstop, not to fact check adequately. Um, and I think also there was a sense that, oh, he's kind of a joke. He'll never actually win the nomination or win the election. And so I don't think there was tough enough scrutiny uh, of him in the campaign. Um, you know, more recently, I think we've done better. And, um, you know, look, Mike Flynn would still be the national security advisor if it weren't for some um, aggressive digging by The Washington Post and The New York Times. Um, Puzder would be labor secretary if it uh, weren't for similar digging by other journalists. And uh, I, you know, I hope that we can continue that uh, uh, that kind of aggressive journalism. Uh, at the end of the day, what we need is not stenography, but mm. real journalism. Mm -hmm. What do you uh, what do you take of the, uh, the the president's stance in general toward the, the press? Some see it as a, a dedicated attempt to discredit at least some 
areas of the press. Of course, all, all presidents have had some heartburn with the press. Yeah, and I mean, I think all presidents, uh, probably all politicians feel unfairly victimized, feel the press uh, is often unfair. And I mean, you know, look, we in the media, we screw up all the time. We are unfair to people at various uh, times. And I think it's also true that a lot of national reporters did not vote for uh, Trump. And uh, so I can see that he would have, you know, that kind of uh, uh, suspicion. Um, so I think part of what's going on is a um, deliberate effort to scapegoat the media that other presidents have pursued to a lesser extent and that leaders around the world have, you know, I mean, this is so familiar to me from days when the Chinese government was denouncing all of us or um, – you know, where the Russian government has done it, uh, all kinds of, of governments have done it. What is a little bit different is that I sometimes feel that President Trump is really attacking the whole idea of truth itself. He's undermining the idea that there is some objective reality out there that we aim to report on. And sure, we often fall short of that objective, but I do think it's dangerous to sort of deny that, to, to simply assert things that are false and to denounce fact checkers and have as cavalier an attitude toward the truth as he seems to feel. Mm. Um, there is some, one side would characterize this as hyperventilation, right? Um, Absolutely. The, the talk of authoritarianism and, and extra con- constitutional tendencies. Um, other side would say, you know, vigilance. And I, I want to use and, that. And both can to, be true. Both can be true, I guess. Yes, <laughs> that's true. Um, you, you recently um, argued a column that we needed a uh, 9-11 style commission to uh, to investigate the, this whole Russian connection. That's right. Uh, yeah, I, um, you know, we, we don't fully understand what happened, but what we do know, uh, or at least what the CIA, the um, the uh, uh, director of national intelligence and the FBI all agree was that the Russian government made a deliberate interference in the U.S. electoral system to benefit um, one candidate. And that's an extraordinary uh, assertion uh, that changed the out- that, that may have changed the outcome of an election in a way that Watergate, for example, just did not. Um, and now we have these reports that, the Trump campaign was um, frequently uh, in communication with Russian intelligence for a year up to the election. And we don't know why. Vice President Pence has said, you know, why on earth would that happen? Which is a great question. And so there is this cloud that is going to hang over the presidency until and unless these questions are answered. They raise fundamental questions about the integrity of the president, about our electoral process. And they also come against the backdrop that President Trump has pursued a policy toward Russia that is a complete departure from what Republicans and Democrats alike have pursued for 70 years. And we don't know why. And so in that context, I think it is really important for the integrity of our processes to try to dispel that cloud. And um, I think that uh, I think the, the 9-11 commission did a great job. I think uh, that kind of independent outside commission uh, with Republicans and Democrats, eminent people who are widely trusted is probably the best way to um, dispel that, uh, that cloud. And I think that would be, frankly, good for President Trump as well as for the, the country itself. Mm-hmm. Senate Democrats so far are going along with the Senate Republicans' idea of let's keep this with the Intelligence uh, Committee. You, you believe it needs to go? Yeah, I, I would. Um, I mean, one takes what one can get, but uh, I believe it would be better if it were an outside 9-11 style commission. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm glad that there do seem to be serious investigations uh, uh, by the Intelligence Committees, also indeed by the FBI, by the Intelligence Community, and... Um, but I think transparency is really important. That when there have been these allegations about you know really fundamental issues, then I think um, public 
investigation and clarification is really useful. I was 13 years old when Watergate happened. Some, a lot of my really powerful political memories are, are of the Senate Watergate Committee conducting its investigations under Sam Irvin. Um, that was good for the country. Mm-hmm. And I hope we get something similar now. Uh, Nixon, of course, blamed the press. He, he, he said if it hadn't been for the, the, the press, he'd still be president, right? Yeah, he said uh, Watergate was a blip uh, if it, mm-hmm. if it, and if the press hadn't hated, it, hated his guts, then, uh, you know, we would all have washed away. And, and so when I hear Trump at his press conference today, for example, denounce the press, then, you know, there is an element of deja vu. And I think Nixon was sincere. I think President Trump is probably sincere. I think they genuinely do feel maligned. And President Obama felt maligned. Hillary Clinton Mm -hmm. felt maligned. Uh, I think that's a natural reaction. But I would push back on all of their accounts. And, you know, I mean, it's sort of remarkable to think that Vice President Pence learned that Mike Flynn had lied to him only because he read it in the Washington Post. Hmm. And um, there's, you know, thank goodness the Washington Post made those reports. Hmm. Uh, that was good for the country. That was good for democracy. And I, um, I think when you have this kind of dysfunction and deception at the highest levels, then, um, you know, I hope that we in the media can aggressively and without fear or favor, um, try to shine a little light on what is happening. Mm. I, uh, my mind, I'm comparing contrasting Nixon and and, uh, and Trump. I'm not saying that, you know, what's what's happening now is a rise to the level of, of Watergate. You know, we, we, we have no idea. But uh, uh, Nixon didn't have a Twitter account. You know, he couldn't bypass the press. Uh, Nixon didn't have uh, a segment of the, of, of the media, which was on his side. Nixon also didn't, you know, Trump, for all his faults, has does have a, a kind of a charm. A charm, absolutely. Uh, which is, so these are assets Trump has that Nixon didn't have. Yeah, they and they have a similar uh, weakness, though. Um, you know, Nixon protected himself initially by having a, a vice president, Spiro Agnew, who was so awful that Nixon could never have been impeached or <laughs> ousted. And then, but then when Agnew. Um, was forced out because of his own misconduct and was replaced by Gerald Ford. Well, Gerald Ford was somebody that uh, Republicans in Congress loved. He was one of them. Mm -hmm. And in the same way, um, Mike Pence is somebody who congressional Republicans would vastly prefer to Trump. And I think that does create a certain vulnerability for Trump over the long run. I mean, I certainly don't think we're, you know, anywhere near an impeachment uh, now. But if things go really badly downhill, then there is no doubt that uh, that Republicans on the Hill would feel much, much more comfortable with Vice President Pence uh, at their helm mm. uh, than, than with President Trump. Mm. Is it a heavier lift nowadays for institutions like New York Times, Washington Post, others um, who are trying to do investigative reporting? Is it a heavier lift uh, in an era where part of the media doesn't want to do that kind of investigation? You know, I, I think the biggest challenge is indeed that the business model for a lot of traditional media has just collapsed. And uh, so everybody is much, much more focused on audience than ever before. And the um, audience, you know, if you're focused on your audience, then you want to cover cats stuck in trees. You don't want to cover um, really murky issues of corruption uh, in a state capital, things like this. And uh, so, you know, the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, we have a business model uh, public radio, public television have a have a viable model, but state newspapers, in particular, uh, some of the large city papers, uh, TV stations, they really don't. And um, it is, and more and more states and localities are uh, have just one political party that is dominant. So they're not getting accountability from a rival political party, and they're no longer really getting accountability from hard digging by journalists on their tail. And that is, I think, one of the things that worries me most about the uh, problems in journalism around the country. It's not 
Uh, it, it's, it's not the failures of the national media, although those failures are real, but the collapse at the state and local level of, of so many really great news organizations. What's the answer, do you think? It's, you know, it's financial pressures, I guess, is the biggest thing, right? Uh, yeah, and I mean, I think that actually uh, public radio offers a, a, a sort of a, a glimpse of what may lie ahead. I think we're going to see more philanthropically funded uh, news organizations as an element of their business model so that they will still sell ads or commercials, uh, but they may also accept grants from foundations, uh, maybe donation. I mean, the New York Times is actually now, um, I mean, apparently a lot of people seem to be buying subscriptions, digital subscriptions to the New York Times now, partly as a way of showing support for the independent media. Mm -hmm. And we're not too proud to accept it. And lately, we just announced a system where people who want to show support can buy a digital subscription that goes to a, a student somewhere. Okay, I've and, seen those ads, yes. Yeah, yeah. okay. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. that just uh, was announced mm -hmm. maybe last week or so. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I don't know the results. But I think we're all kind of groping for a new viable model to pay for um, good journalism, which is expensive. I spend, you know, I, I go on trips and it's expensive we our baghdad bureau if, you, if you're trying to make money there is no reason why you would ever have a baghdad bureau mm -hmm. because it is so expensive mm -hmm. uh, partly for security reasons and yet it's important yeah uh salt lake tribune is is now offering a public radio style memberships i, I noticed oh is that right okay yeah, yeah so oh, that's interesting so, so that's yeah. a, that mm -hmm. they're going that model too right right and you have uh, outlets like ProPublica and yes and indeed you're trying to go the the, the nonprofit. Yeah, and um, and I you know I think that is an element of it. I mean, also it's notable that some um, human rights organizations or think tanks are providing the kind of accountability that journalism used to, and um, and you know I think that's great too. Hmm. Let's take a brief break. When we come back, we'll more with the New York Times um, columnist Nicholas Kristof. He's a double Pulitzer winner and also author with his wife of Half the Sky. And I'm, I'm blanking on the, the newest one. A, a Path Appears. A Path Appears, yes. I want to talk about those as we go along. And uh, we are talking with Nicholas Kristoff more following the break. Welcome to Science by the Slice. When we think of bees, images of a busy hive inhabited by an imposing queen bee and her specialized minions come to mind. But not all bees live in cooperative harmony, says USU biologist Karen Kapheim. Some are long rangers. Kapheim and her colleagues from around the world study genetic changes associated with bee evolution. A key feature of increased sociality, they say, is a species' increased capacity to regulate genes in individuals. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in mathematics and varied scientific disciplines. Details at usu.edu science. We're back with Nicholas Kristoff. He is New York uh, Times columnist, uh, Pulitzer uh, Prize winner, uh, double winner. And uh, he was recently on the Utah State University campus giving a talk titled Sex, Gender, Politics, a conversation with Nicholas Kristoff. Uh, and uh, he was brought in by the Kane College of the Arts along with the Center for Women and Gender at Utah State uh, University. Uh, I want to talk about, uh, maybe have you gauge the, the, the temperature, if you will, um, a lot of new administrations, very few new administrations come in totally smoothly, right? So there, there's stories about getting their sea legs, et cetera, chaos, et cetera. Uh, many new presidents, very early in their administrations, you've, you've heard the word impeachment thrown around, you know, with <laughs> pretty early. I, I, I noticed it very early in President Clinton's. Congressman Bob Barr was throwing that around uh, almost That's on Inauguration true. Day. Not all presidents. So those two, two factors... Is this something new uh, with with Trump, a new level? I think it is new in uh, a couple of respects. I mean, you're absolutely right that um, other presidents have had uh, trouble initially, too. And President Clinton, uh, in particular, um, as he took office, there were 
there were problems with his uh, policy in the communications office, with uh, don't ask, don't tell, um, uh, in a number of areas. Um, but a couple of things are different. One is that new presidents historically after the election and early in office, they've tried very hard to reach out to, uh, to appeal to everyone, to create kind of an era of good feelings, to create a honeymoon. And they've often appointed people of the opposite political party to their cabinet, this kind of thing. And um, Trump has not done that. He's very much really doubled down on appeal to his base. Um, and that may be why, indeed, his popularity has dropped. Uh, and I, um, it was actually sort of interesting. Right after the election, uh, there was a period when his popularity, uh, his approval ratings seemed to go up. And I think that was because, uh, frankly, because of a lot of liberal outrage and protests. And I think there, there was a backlash against it that helped Trump. But then he, he didn't reach out, and he seemed to appoint a lot of controversial uh, people. He seemed to go... Um, toward a more extremist approach, and I think that has has whittled away at his uh, support, and so that's unusual to um, not to have this outreach. And the other thing is this Russia angle, which is just extraordinary. I mean, we, you know, the revelations that uh, the intelligence community agrees that. Russia deliberately interfered to steal the election on behalf of Trump. And now that there were these uh, secret interactions between the Trump team and Russian intelligence officials for a year prior to the election, uh, the fact that um, Mike Flynn had these conversations with the Russian ambassador, uh, left the vice president in the dark, even though President Trump knew about it, uh, even though President Trump knew that the Department of Justice had warned that um, that Flynn would be vulnerable to blackmail. It is, um, it's all kind of crazy. And, you know, we don't know what is going on and where the truth lies, but it's a shadow that has not existed in the case of previous administrations. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, during the campaign, uh, famously, um, candidate Trump, throughout a quote-unquote outrage every day. And so some of them got buried. Uh, do you think the Russia thing gets folded into the, you know, in, into the outrage du jour? It's interesting that, I mean, Trump um, has been, you know, much was much more of a Teflon candidate. Um, and I think part of that was that there were just a lot of people who were very, very fed up and were uh, desperate to see something new. And I think they... Um, I think they had serious reservations in many cases about Trump's personal behavior. Um, probably Utah is a case where that was particularly true. And yet they voted for him because they deeply distrusted Hillary Clinton, because they thought that Trump would deliver on Supreme Court nominations, which was an important issue to them. Um, and But I think there was, you know, indeed some uh, ambivalence there. I do think that it's a harder lift to maintain that Teflon when you are, in fact, the president. There is more scrutiny. Um, it probably helped Trump to some degree that people did not expect him to win. Um, now that he's in office, I think he's finding that you know, what he says matters in a way that it did not when he was just a candidate, and that scrutiny is going to continue. I think the leaks are, frankly, going to continue. Um, He's to some degree at war with his own, you know, with his own administration, mm-hmm. and um, there's a level of dysfunction that uh, you just you just can't hide. Well, talk about the leaks. Um, probably every president ever, every government official ever, has railed against leaks. Doesn't stop them. Investigations happen. President Trump says he's going to investigate. Uh, what do you think? Um, first of all, there's a certain amount of hypocrisy in President Trump of all people denouncing leaks and that he was celebrating leaks a few months ago when they were happening to the Clinton uh, campaign. But, uh, you know, but he he has a point. Uh, it's hard to run an administration when people are leaking like a sieve. Um, so far, I must say, I think that the leaks have, uh, for the most part, been 
fairly careful ones and that they have not revealed sources and methods, which are the is what is most important, but have in fact revealed uh, deception or hypocrisy on the part of senior officials like Mike Flynn. And those are the category of leaks that at the end of the day probably do the country a certain amount of good, although, you know, I, one has to be careful about, uh, uh, about them. Um, you know, um, the Pentagon Papers were a leak. That, that did a lot of good for the country. Um, I think that we're probably better off today knowing that Mike Flynn was uh, apparently not telling the truth uh, about his conversations with the Russian ambassador um, and, um, so, um, but, but as you suggest also, just most importantly, we're not going to turn that spigot off. Uh, um, it's, you know, so many people have so much information that, uh, it's going to get out. President Trump is in a kind of a interesting, difficult position, isn't he? He was elected sort of as a bomb thrower, right? We're going to blow up the, the bureaucracy that what's working isn't working, or what exists isn't working, and, and he's going to change it. On the other hand, some are telling him, you know, you need a you need a James Baker type. You need somebody to come in and who knows everything about government, and you need to do more outreach to the establishment that you ran against. Yeah, you know, I mean, I don't think Trump is particularly ideological. I don't think he, um, you know, I, I, you know, Mike Pence, for example, is a I think it's a real conservative. I don't think that Trump is a real conservative. I don't think he has strong views about a lot of the issues that he uh, talks about. And after his election, he could have gone in a number of different ways. I think that it was unfortunate that he uh, tended to rely on a lot of more extreme folks like Steve Bannon and um, appointed a lot of deeply problematic people to offices. Mike Flynn was a, is a good example. It looks as if all the people being talked about to replace Mike Flynn would be credible people, would be much, much better than Flynn. And likewise, uh, the new appointee for uh, Labor Secretary, Alexander Acosta, is a, a very credible figure, uh, much, much improved over uh, Puzda, is, is, uh, is the, the, who, who uh, had to withdraw. So um, I... You know, I, I, I do think that there, that if there were a James Baker-like figure, if there were some solid uh, cabinet appointees, uh, Jim Mattis, I think, is a very credible people who's a person who's very reassuring to a lot of leaders around the world uh, as Secretary of Defense. Uh, it'd be nice if there were a few more people, and it's certainly helpful that that Mike Fl- Mike Flynn was really an outlier, and I think a lot of folks were really concerned that he was going to be the last person that President Trump talked to on a foreign policy crisis. Um, if uh, if he is replaced by a steady hand, that will be a enormous step toward a more credible foreign policy. Mm. Uh, your talk at USU is titled "Sex, uh, Gender, and uh, and Politics." Certainly, a very timely topic, and uh, also links into uh, the a lot of the, the work you and your wife have been doing. You have this guy. Um, wonder just your general comment on the on the whole gender. Uh, dynamic in in the past election. Yeah, it was interesting, isn't it? Um, um, you know, I mean, I think gender still matters, especially for positions that have been traditionally uh, male. Uh, probably like the, the president. I think we have a paradigm in our head of what a president looks like, um, and so I think it probably hurt Hillary Clinton a little bit at the at the margin. Um, I don't think it was a huge effect, but probably a, a modest one. There have been a lot of fascinating studies where the same resume is sent out uh, to people, sometimes with a male name, John, and other times with a female name, Jane. And it turns out that men and women alike, uh, if it's for a traditionally male job, men and women alike tend to think that the John resume is uh, a better fit for the job mm-hmm. than the Jane resume, you know, even though they, they're exactly the same. Um, so. You know, I think that I don't think that's misogyny. I don't. I think that's just unconscious bias and kind of the way the way we see the world. I think it's certainly improving, um, and indeed, it's striking that with young kids, the we have a problem 
almost in the other direction, that it's boys who are dropping out of school. It's boys who can't find places in the workforce, um, who um, get criminal records, and who end up as uh, kind of deeply marginalized. And um, you know, two-thirds of the members of the National Honor Society around the country right now are girls. Mm. Um, so... Um, uh, so we, we still have gender issues that are quite severe. I, I think that, the, for my money, the two most important issues, ones we often don't talk enough about, one is domestic violence and the other is um, is sex trafficking. We've done a, a few episodes of this program on, on sex trafficking. It's uh, it's I, I don't think it is enough reported. I mean, you know, it's... Yeah, I mean, it's you look at the numbers and it's... Uh, well, we, do, we don't really know the numbers is, is yeah. part of it, but... Um, um, 10,000 cases of underage kids uh, being trafficked uh, are reported to the um, National Center for Missing and Exploited Children each year. Um, and, you know, these are home- – I think, I think we tend to think of foreign women being smuggled into the U.S., and that's a real problem. But uh, there's also a vast problem with underage American girls who are – you know, run away from home, and then the only person looking for them at the bus station is is a pimp. And the idea that a pimp is an economic partner of these girls is such a ludicrous misinterpretation of that relationship. And the idea that in so many places around the country that the police arrest that 15- or 16-year-old girl and they don't arrest the pimp or her customer is just outrageous to me. There's an organization with Utah Ties, Operation Underground Railroad, which uh, they uh, they work on child sex trafficking. They they go around and do sting operations and you know and help good for them perpetrators. Uh, I wonder what, what what would you say? What what are the top uh, bullet points to to reduce stop sex trafficking? I, I mean, I'd say two of the critical ones are going after pimps, uh, not just the girls, uh, and. You know, I in in our book, A Path Appears, we talked uh, to a woman who had been um, trafficked, I think it was at age 13, uh, spent years being brutalized in the sex trade. And she was arrested, if I remember right, 187 times for prostitution. Her pimp, never. Uh, that's outrageous. Mm-hmm. Um, so we need to go after pimps. And I think we also need to go after the customers, after Johns. And... Um, this is awkward for police departments because the Johns are often upstanding members of the community. It's embarrassing for them. It's embarrassing for the police. But right now, you know, on any given day in the U.S., about 300,000 men will buy sex. It's virtually none of them will be arrested. There is essentially zero chance that you are going to get arrested. It seems to me that if there were some tiny risk, if there were, a, you know, 1% chance that there would be an awful lot of men who would be scared and would not would not do it and if in that case there would be a lot less demand for sex and if there were less demand there would be a lot fewer 14 year old girls being being trafficked and and you know finally we have a website backpage.com where 80 percent of of underage girls who are trafficked they are sold on backpage it is to me outrageous that we allow a website to sell kids like that Want to uh, l- let's take a break and want to come back and read something that really struck me from the the website to half the sky movement dot org, based on your your book, right? Um, and and so the work continues. Uh, we'll talk more with New York Times columnist Nicholas Kristoff following this break. Hey, I'm Jana Boomrod on the next Radio Lab. Well, it's certain. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. Are you sure? Yeah, well, uh, We've got stories from that surprisingly razor-thin line between certainty no, I, it's, I, and doubt. Join us Tuesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Next time on Living on Earth, how the military is going renewable. They hooked up their computers, radios, artillery targeting software to solar arrays that had battery storage. And a young Marine didn't have to go into harm's way simply to move fuel to that forward operating base. Cutting casualties and pollution. I'm Steve Kerwood, and that's next time on Living on Earth from PRI. Join us Wednesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. 
We're back with Nicholas Kristof. He is a double Pulitzer Prize winner. He's a New York Times columnist, and he uh, was recently on the Utah State University campus uh, giving a talk called Sex, Gender, and Politics and, and a conversation with uh, Nicholas Kristof. And this event was uh, presented by the Kane College of the Arts in collaboration with Center for Women and Gender at Utah State uh, University. Uh, so here is, here, here's that striking sentence from halfthesky-movement.org. The central moral challenge of our time is reaching a tipping point. Just as slavery was the defining struggle of the 19th century and totalitarianism of the 20th, the fight to end the oppression of women and girls worldwide defines our current century. Yeah, that's, yeah, a, big, you know, that's a big statement. It is, it is. And it, it, um, um, I think people always think that it's you know, meant as a, a hyperbole or something, but it really isn't. And, you know, one, one reason I say that um, has to do with, um, with something we never think about. You know, I, I often at talks I'll ask people, are there more males or females in the world today? And everybody thinks there are more females because there are more females in the U.S. There are more females in um, there are more female students here, actually. Um, but worldwide, there are actually more males in the world than there are females, and that's because gender discrimination in most countries is not just a matter of inappropriate comments or touching. It's not a matter of just unequal pay. Uh, it's lethal, and it's uh, it's. Uh, uh, it's uh, abortion based on on uh, gender, based on 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 sex, and then it's uh, giving food to boys but not to girls. It's vaccinating sons but not daughters, uh, taking sons to the doctor but not daughters. And the upshot is that um, is that uh, you have a lot of girls who end up dying, and um, so that there are between fifty and hundred million women missing worldwide because of this gender inequity. And so the, the, the toll in any 10-year period, you have more girls who are discriminated against to death than all the people who died in all the genocides of the 20th century. This is staggering. So when you think of it in those terms, you know, I think it's hard to see it as anything but the central moral challenge of the mm-hmm. century. You also, in your book, you, t- you talk about this as uh, economic opportunity. Empowering women and girls um, improves the economy anywhere you Absolutely. You I are. mean, there's so many countries in the world that are essentially trying to, you know, they're like planes trying to take off with one wing, and it doesn't work very well. Um, and uh, in fact, the, really the basis for Half the Sky arose when um, my wife Cheryl and I were basis correspondents in Asia, and we were looking for lessons from Asia and its economic takeoff. Uh, and each country had a different economic model. So Japan's model was different from China's, was different from Malaysia's, uh, was different from Hong Kong's or South Korea's. But the common thread was that they educated girls. They brought those educated women into the formal labor force and saw this huge boom in productivity, which benefited those individuals, but also benefited the country. And so, yeah, when countries don't educate girls, when they discriminate against women, they are also sentencing themselves to backwardness. Uh, I wonder. There's some very impactful stories. Of course, the you know the the best thing you can do to get an issue across is to tell a story, right? Which, which absolutely, you, which you and your wife did in the, in the book. And I wonder, uh, you know, some of those women do stay with you, at least in your in your mind. Do um, you have any updates on? You stay in touch. Oh yeah, we're. Um, um, you know, we're in touch with uh, um, with a whole bunch of them. Um, um, some of them, you know, some of them don't have email, and uh, so it's kind of inconsistent. But um, I, I was just in touch with a, uh, a, a woman we uh, write about in Half the Sky called Edna Adan, who runs a hospital in Somaliland. Incredible woman who's... Uh, saving lives of women, giving birth in places like that, the most dangerous thing a woman can do uh, is get pregnant. And there are horrific childbirth injuries. Uh, and she is training midwives. She's uh, providing safe deliveries, and she's fighting um, FGM, female genital mutilation, which is a huge problem uh, for Somalis. And she... Um, she's a Somali, and so um, she is technically 
at risk under the new executive order, or the recent executive order that barred Somalis among seven seven predominantly Muslim countries from coming to the U.S. And I just, I, I must say, I um, I felt kind of crushed when I think of Edna, who is just the kind of person we should be supporting, you know, this powerful voice against extremism. And to see her at risk of being barred, uh, I I was in touch with her, uh, you know, over that. And I, um, and I, I so much admire what she's doing. And some, actually, some good news. We, uh, there was another woman I've written about a little bit called Laura Statchel, who run, is in San Francisco, uh, was a, is an OBGYN who was visiting Africa. And the lights went out in a delivery ward at night when she was there, and there was no generator. No, people were trying to deliver babies with flashlights. And so she started a, a, a program to bring solar-powered lighting to to hospital delivery wards. And um, one of those is now going to go to Edna's hospital in Somaliland. Oh, that's wonderful. So some it's connections really cool. there. Yeah. Now, the, the uh, a path appears. You, you, you treat a lot of stories of people who see a problem and take it upon themselves to... To, to address it, to, yeah. To address it. And we also look more at the U.S. We, um, half the sky, we were looking mostly at women and mostly abroad. And in A Path Appears, we tried to broaden the lens to the U.S. and to problems boys have as well. And really our main argument there was that one of the reasons our interventions don't do better is that we start too late uh, and that it's an awful lot easier to help a troubled you know, three-year-old than it is a troubled 13-year-old mm-hmm. um, and that there are things we can do as a society that, that help. And we list you know, a lot of great examples, uh, some of which uh, I think Utah, a nurse family partnership is one of the kind of the gold standard organizations uh, that helps at risk, um, often at risk, single moms, uh, low income moms. And uh, I think nurse family partnership is quite active in Utah. Mm. What uh, what was the impulse that you and your wife had wrote this, you know, that uh, a path appears? You're, one, I think you're trying to highlight good being done, encourage good being done, but this is trying to find hope in the world? What are you? Yeah, you know, uh, <laughs> I think that people often think that these are areas that are really depressing. And, in fact, my perspective in Cheryl's is that there has been a tremendous amount of progress in the world. Um, since 1990, 122 million kids' lives have been saved through various pretty simple interventions. Um, you know, there are so many problems, it just seems so difficult. But you provide a insecticide-treated bed net to a family in uh, Ethiopia, and you know, those kids are probably not going to die of malaria. And it's kind of astonishing what what one can do. You deworm a child with one pill of albendazole, and that child is not going to have intestinal parasites, is going to be more likely to go to school, less likely to drop out. Um, um, you provide high school girls in – school girls in poor countries with – um, feminine hygiene kits to deal with menstruation, which often causes them to drop out, and they stay in school. And, uh, you know, they're, we're getting a lot better at solving some of these problems, both at home and abroad. And so we wanted to celebrate some of the people who were doing great work and also encourage others. Um, don't think about this as bleak and depressing, but this is kind of an amazing time when one really can move the needle and maybe not solve every problem for everybody, but certainly solve some problems for some people. Hmm. One, I'm just only speaking for myself, what, one potential uh, person I'd like to pick up the, the book is the president. Um, he, he seems to have, this is my characterization, seems to have a, a, a worldview where the world is very angry and bleak and a dog-eat-dog place. It's, it's kind of a Hobbesian worldview. Um, I don't know for sure if that's whether that, yeah. that's that's my diagnosis, and um, it doesn't have to be happen to be my worldview, but but maybe I'm naive. I don't know. You know, there 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 are absolutely a lot of problems in the world, and I've seen in my reporting, I've seen um, how awful human beings can be. But what keeps me going is that side by side with the worst of humanity, you really do see the very best, and. 
and it works. Uh, I, you know, I, I remember in uh, one of the most depressing trips I made was to um, Eastern Congo, rape capital of the world, most lethal conflict since World War II, interviewed a warlord who was busy massacring people, raping women. But I also met this incredible Polish nun who is running these aid programs and this orphanage and this school and negotiating to keep the warlord out of her town. And uh, she was using evidence-based programs that are, you know, those kids are going to be so much better off down the road. They're going to have so much better lives because of her. And these these simple things that we um, – I mean, deworming is something that is, you know, we don't think about because our kids don't have intestinal parasites. But if kids um, have parasites, then they're anemic. They miss school. They don't learn as much. They earn less as adults 20 years later. And that can be resolved with one pill costing about five cents. Uh, there's still a lot of people who go blind for lack of, um, of, of vitamin A, a vitamin A supplement that costs about two cents. Um, the Jimmy Carter's work on fighting river blindness is just unbelievable. Uh, the work of so many missionaries fighting leprosy is utterly inspiring. Leprosy used to be so common in the places I go. And it's, you know, it's still there. It's still a risk, but it is so much better than it was. I want to just have a couple minutes left. I want to return to uh, to politics. Uh, to a couple things. Uh, first of all, get your your take on the women's marches. A lot of energy there. It, it's it was interesting to me that that was that was the first big um, show of energy, political energy after the inauguration of the president. Yeah, and it, I thought that was fascinating. What I um, hope is that they will build a uh, big tent and not make it just liberal women, but make it every woman they can possibly find uh, and bring in pro-life women as well as pro-choice women, uh, really make it as broad a co- and men too, of course, make it as broad a coalition because I think broader coalitions are more effective. And the other is that I hope they can really apply it to policy issues day by day. You know, Take that and apply it to sex trafficking uh, so that prosecutors go after pimps and johns, not just these teenage girls. Uh, the One of the policies of President Trump that I find most distressing hasn't gotten enough attention, and uh, that is what is called the Mexico City policy or the global gag rule, which essentially says that the U.S. won't provide public health uh, money to overseas aid groups that have any connection uh, with abortion, with uh, not just providing abortion, but with uh, telling women where to get an abortion, for example. And, you know, the upshot uh, is, you know, in a lot of countries, there's just no other organization. So the 